So we are closing up our series, What's in a Name? And we've done five weeks of this now. And what we've been talking about is this line from Romeo and Juliet that Shakespeare had Juliet say, what's in a name? And she was basically talking about the fact that names are meaningless. Names don't really mean anything. And that's true in your culture and my culture today as well. But in biblical times, names meant a lot. And so what would happen is God would interact with his people in some really awesome way and a name would come out of it. There'd be a nickname that the people would give God or God would give himself. And we've talked about the God who sees us. We've talked about the God who is enough. We've talked about the God who's our healer. And we've talked about the God who is jealous for us, that loves us so much that he wants our heart and our attention for him. And so out of all those different kind of experiences the people have with God, that name came out. And so tonight we're going to talk about another name, and it's just kind of like a nickname. When I first started here at the church as the youth pastor about 12 years ago, we had this uh, real small group, just six kids and two boys and four girls, all middle school kids. Joey, who's our youth pastor now, you'll be hearing him preach later in the summer, um, but he was one of the seventh grade boys in that group. And it's interesting because if you guys remember being a seventh grader, you know, seventh grade boys and girls don't jive so well together, right? And that's because basically they're about very different things, right? I mean, girls take showers and wear deodorant and boys are just opposed to such things, you know? And so Joey and this other boy really had to hang together, okay? It was kind of the stinky side of the room. But Joey and this other boy had to hang together. And what we realized very quickly was that this other kid was kind of trouble, you know? I remember one time walking downstairs, and this other kid that Joey would hang out with actually was hitting a girl in the head repeatedly with a ping pong paddle, okay? And so that didn't go so well. Um, He would call names. He always had a comment. He's one of the only people in my whole life I literally picked up by the shirt and put up against the wall. Joey's a witness. Not proud of that one. Haven't done that since. Um, But man, this kid was just kind of trouble. And then we realized that not only was this kid trouble, but Joey was kind of this kid's conscience, okay? Joey was kind of the one who would bring this kid back in line, okay? And so you'd have this kid kind of saying, hey, let's throw glass off the roof. And Joey would be like, no, man, we can't do that. You know, all right, all right, well, well let's let all of the air out of Doug's tires. No, man, we can't do that, you know. And, and so Joey was always bringing this kid back. And then one day, the name dawned on us. We realized that just like Joey was this kid's conscience, it was kind of like Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio, you know. So here they are, right? And you have a perfect picture. I wish I could have photoshopped Joey's face on Jiminy Cricket and, and Pinocchio would have been this other nameless kid. I won't, I won't mention his name. But this name Jiminy came out of this experience. And I'll never forget this one day when it really hit home for me. I was walking down the stairs and Joey uh, thought that he was completely alone downstairs. And I heard singing. And I was like, what the heck? And I opened the door. And he's like, when you wish upon a star. I was like, what the heck? It got so weird at that level. But anyway. Um, so... Just like that nickname came out, often when God interacted with his people, nicknames would come out too. Wow, Pastor liked that one. Okay, cool. That's good. That's good. Well, you wrote that movie, right? That was, uh, was one of yours. Yeah, that just came out. Good job. Good stuff. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to lose my job and my wife possibly because he's my father-in-law. So anyway, um, it was nice knowing the kids. But anyway, um, but out of that comes this nickname. And in the same way, we've been saying that Man, God would do something awesome and this name would come out. God would do something great and that name would come out. And you and I, here we are thousands of years later, we need to know God in these ways, don't we? We need to know how God interacts with his people. We need to know that he still does these kinds of things and that these names can mean something for us on a personal level. 
And so we've been talking about all these names, and tonight we're going to kind of close out with another one. And I think this other one reaches a lot of us, because this name really comes out of our experience when it comes to sometimes feeling worthless. You ever felt that? You ever been there? I mean, I talk with people all the time, and, and sometimes I've felt this way myself. Like, I just don't have anything to offer. Like, there's something in me that just kind of feels empty. It feels alone. It feels like if someone were to say to me, hey, could you contribute? It would be like, not really. Because I just kind of feel worthless. And, and that comes out of a lot of things. It comes out of maybe how we were parented. It comes out of, you know, maybe an opportunity we had that didn't go so well. It comes out of failed relationships. It comes out of all kinds of stuff. But we all kind of can get to that place. I've talked to a lot of people who say, man, you know, there was a time where I kind of had self-esteem. I felt excited. I, was, I, I felt self-worth. But it feels like that's kind of left. And I'm looking at somebody, man, you're gifted. It seems like you have potential. But, but inside the feeling is I don't have anything to offer. Uh, some of us feel alone, don't we? Right? I mean, I think experts have kind of said that our culture is like being alone in a crowded room. You ever heard that before? Like we're in this big crowded room with all these kinds of people, but we have very few deep, real connections. And I would say, honestly, take it a little bit of a step further, I think it's more like we're alone in a crowded chat room these days because it's like we have all these friends online, we have all these people on Twitter following us. But man, if we were honest, it's like the depth of any real relationship isn't that strong, is it? So some of us feel just really alone, if we're honest tonight. Some of us feel really abandoned, like we once had the friendship, we once had the closeness, but that's been lost because this happened or because that happened. And so worthlessness, feeling alone, feeling abandoned, are very real things for a lot of us in the room tonight. Now, some of you guys would say, yeah, Doug, I really don't feel that way. I really don't. I'm good. I, I don't feel worthless, alone, or abandoned. But, but here's what I want you to realize tonight. And it sounds like bad news at first. It's really not. But, but here's what we need to realize is that maybe you're not feeling that naturally or physically or in relationships here and now. But the truth is, if we just kind of zoom out a little bit and look at our lives apart from God, the truth is that we really are spiritually worthless. There's nothing we can offer God. What can you give God? What can you offer him? How can you possibly buy your way back into right standing with him? That we're alone, that, that apart from the Savior, we're just completely alone. We're completely abandoned. No way to no rescuing. So I don't know if tonight you're coming here saying, man, I do feel worthless, alone, and abandoned. Or if you're just saying, man, I need to just zoom out a little bit and look at myself without Jesus in my life. The truth is, every one of us would feel and be spiritually worthless, alone, and abandoned. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you feel some of that. Maybe you feel some of that tension. I was just reading a book this past week, and the book was saying that, man, one of the things that stands out about someone who has a relationship with Jesus is incredible peace. And maybe you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and maybe you don't buy all the resurrection from the dead, and, and like, I mean, all this stuff that just seems so weird to you. But man, maybe, have you ever, have you ever looked at a follower of Jesus and just said, I, I don't give him all the resurrection stuff, but man, I, I'll admit There's something to this peace. There's something different about them. There's something that feels like they're centered, that they have maybe some self-worth, that they have an understanding that they're not alone or abandoned. Maybe, maybe, maybe you could leave tonight knowing that peace, knowing that fulfillment, knowing what it is to know God. And so tonight, whether you feel this very naturally or you have to zoom out a little bit and feel this spiritually and see for what it is in your heart, I want you to know tonight that we're going to hit 
get hit on different levels. There's going to be different of us in the room that feel one way or the other. And so tonight, I hope, as we read through an interesting story where a name of God is revealed, that you'll just really, really appreciate what God has done for you. You see, as we read this story tonight, it's kind of interesting because God doesn't seem all that present in this story. It's kind of weird. He doesn't seem all that present. The truth is he is. But, but beyond that, really, the story we're going to look at tonight actually is supposed to be a picture for you and I of our relationship with God. So if you walked in here tonight feeling worthless, alone, or abandoned, or if just spiritually we can all recognize that apart from Jesus, we are spiritually worthless, alone, and abandoned, then this story will speak to us. And so I want you guys to just think about an interesting story And we're going to have a few names that are really important to remember. Three names, and I'll kind of tell you them as we go a little bit. The first name is Naomi. Okay, there's this woman named Naomi. She's married to this man, and they live in Bethlehem, and they have two boys. And they are Jewish people. They are, you know, part of the chosen people of God. They've experienced God. You know, the nation has seen God do great things. But what happens is there's a famine. And so Naomi and her husband, they leave. They go to this place called Moab. And when they get to Moab, they begin to kind of settle into the city. And eventually, Naomi's husband dies, okay? So she's a widow. She's got these two boys. And they end up marrying women from Moab. And they name, uh, one of them's name is Orpah, and the other one's name is Ruth, okay? Now, Orpah, not Oprah, okay? I actually, when I read this through this story, I was, I was confused by that. And I actually looked into it, and supposedly, Oprah was actually named after Orpah, okay? That is not a joke, I promise you. It says on Wikipedia, it's got to be true, okay? And so apparently that's what happened, and I'm not joking, you can look it up, but everyone kept mispronouncing it, so they stuck with Orpah, or they went with Oprah, rather. But Orpah, here in this story, and then Ruth. Now, Ruth is the second name you need to remember. So you got Naomi, she's the mother-in-law, right? And then you got Orpah, and then Ruth, who's the other daughter-in-law. Now, what happens is, over time, Orpah and Ruth's husbands also die, So now Naomi is without a husband and her two sons. And here are these three widows living together. An old one, Naomi, and then Orpah and Ruth, these young ones. And Naomi pulls aside Orpah and Ruth and says, listen, you guys need to go back to your people. And here's why. Listen, because if they didn't, you know what they would be? Worthless, alone, and abandoned. Worthless. I mean, in that culture, if you're a woman, it's not like today where you go out and get yourself a job. In that culture, if you don't have someone to protect you and provide for you, you become worthless very, very quickly. And so these women would become worthless apart from having husbands that could take care of them. So Naomi says, you guys need to go back to your families, find some men to take care of you. They would have been alone and they would have felt completely abandoned. So Orpah says, all right, I'm going to go start a television network, I'm just kidding. Uh, she says, okay, I'm going to go, and I am going to go back to Moab and do my thing there. And Ruth says, Naomi, wherever you go, I am going. Wherever you're going, I'm going to go with you. And so Naomi says, all right, well, I'm headed back to my people. I'm headed back to Bethlehem. And so they make the journey back to Bethlehem. And as they're on their way back, I think more and more what's happened is sinking into their hearts. More and more what's happened is is sinking in. The fact that really they're walking back into their city very much empty-handed, worthless, alone, and abandoned. And actually, it's interesting. There's some Jewish ancient texts. Now, this is not biblical. This is not from the Bible. But there are some rabbis that have written about this. And, And one of the things that they have said is that walking back through Bethlehem must have been 
really, really devastating for Naomi because as she was walking back through, people were probably looking at her saying, you got what you deserved. You got what you deserved because you left us. You got what you deserved because your boys married women from Moab who aren't God's chosen people. And so here you are empty-handed and here you are without anything. And so here's Naomi and Ruth. And Ruth is an outsider. Ruth is completely rejected by all these people because she's not a chosen person. She's not a Jewish person. And so Naomi and Ruth are there. And, and actually, somebody approaches Naomi and says, hey, Naomi. And she, they call out her name. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call, call me Mara because Mara means bitter. And God has made my life bitter. And so you know what? The worthlessness, the alone, the, uh, being alone, the abandonment is starting to really sink in. And in this, they start to act desperately. In fact, Ruth begins to realize we got to get some food. We have to go get some food because we have nothing. There's no one to provide for us. And so she begins to say, all right, I'm going to go out. And I'm going to glean on the fields. What gleaning was, was the guys would go out and do the harvest. You know, they'd bring in the grains. And anything that was dropped or left, there was actually a law that the, the poor could go in and take what was left over, what was undesirable. You know, this would be kind of like you and I tonight. Imagine going and waiting behind a bagel store for them to throw the, the bad bagels, the, the day olds, out into the dumpster and then go home. This was an act of desperation. Some of you guys in college are like, I do that every night. What are you talking about? Like, some of you are like, that's a great idea, right? Okay. Leave a tip, okay? But this for them in that culture was desperation, it was shameful. And so Ruth goes out. And she begins to glean. She begins to take what's not desired and what's left over. And then we kind of pick up a little bit. You guys can read along. It's, we're going to do the whole book of Ruth tonight. So we're just going to skip through. And I'm going to kind of tell you some verses and fill you in as we go. But Ruth 2 verse 3 says, So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. Now, who's Boaz? Well, that's the third name you need to remember. Naomi. That's the mother-in-law, Ruth. That's the daughter-in-law, both of which have lost their husbands. And here is Boaz. And we're going to find out who he is a little bit later in the story. Verse 5, Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? So he notices Ruth. Ruth stands out. And he realizes what's going on. And so the, the guy fills Boaz in. Boaz is the owner of this field. Fills him in and says, here's what happened. She left. The, you know, she, she wouldn't leave Naomi and the whole deal. She fills, she, he, he fills him in. And then in verse 8, it says, So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the girls. So what do we see here? We see Boaz providing for somebody in a way that they don't deserve at all. I'll just ask you, you're starting to find yourself in the story. I hope you don't think you're Boaz. You're starting to realize that just like you haven't been treated like you deserve, here's, here's Ruth not being treated like she des deserves. And then it goes on and says, I've told the men not to touch you. Boaz is now protecting someone who doesn't deserve his protection. Are you find yourself in the story. Are you seeing yourself a little bit in the story? And it goes on. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? You know what she's saying? She's saying, I'm, I'm worthless. I, I'm poor. I have nothing to offer you, Boaz. 
I'm out here in the field just getting what I can so my mother-in-law and I can survive. I'm abandoned. I'm alone. Probably the first person that's been nice to her since Moab. Probably the first person that looked her in the eyes since Moab. The first person that's been willing to treat her kindly. Boaz replied in verse 11, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. So then they talk for a while. Ruth goes home and she begins to tell Naomi what happened. She tells her that she went to this field where this man Boaz was. And verse 20 says this, and this is where we get our name. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now what's a kinsman redeemer? Well, a kinsman redeemer in that culture, and this is going to matter for you and I a lot, I promise, okay? A kinsman redeemer in that culture was a male relative who could find another relative and buy them back from their troubles. Get them out of hardship, get them out of their need, get them out of their brokenness. A kinsman redeemer was someone that had to be related, but that could look at someone who didn't deserve his mercy and didn't deserve what he would give and would redeem them from the situation that they were stuck in. And that's who Boaz potentially could be for Naomi and Ruth. So Boaz is related to Naomi, and Naomi went into this situation. The one thing she came home with besides Ruth was this field. It probably belonged to her husband. And so she knows that Boaz could maybe buy the field from her, and then they'd have some money to get some food. But the kind of the catch of this whole story is that in this specific situation, Ruth was attached to the field. So Boaz wouldn't have to just be willing to buy a field back. He'd have to be willing to take Ruth as his wife, but Ruth didn't deserve it. But Ruth was worthless, but Ruth was alone, but Ruth was abandoned. But in this story, you see something that kind of reminds me of you and I, doesn't it? You see that you and I were alone and worthless and abandoned. You see that you and I don't deserve anything. But Ruth continues to go back to Boaz's field, and in Ruth chapter 3, Naomi says, you should should approach Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. You should go to him and ask him to redeem you, to buy you back, though you don't deserve it, to redeem you from your place of worthlessness and abandonment and being alone. You should approach him. Just imagine being this woman who's had so much loss, who's been just looked down on the entire time that she's been in this new city. Just imagine her approaching someone and asking for that kind of mercy. Again, kind of reminds me a little bit of somebody. How about you? So she approaches Boaz, and he says, I, I would like to be that kinsman redeemer. I would like to purchase you back. I would like to take you out of this desperate and broken situation. But the crazy thing is, guys, is there's a catch. I'll tell you what this is. This is the point in the movie when the guy and the girl are falling for each other and you're all excited and you're like, yes, they're going to end up together. But you look at your watch and you're only 40 minutes into the movie and so you know something has to go wrong, right? 
you know, like Channing Tatum is going to be there and he's going to be in love with this girl and all of a sudden he's going to like have cardiac arrest and his brain's going to, you know, fry for a few minutes. He's going to be in a coma for three months and Emma Stone's going to wait it out, you know, and she's going to love him anyway and wait for him to recover and recoup and feed him and all that kind of stuff. Or, or, or they're going to be ready to walk down the aisle, different movie, like part two, different movie, right? Ready to walk down the aisle and Emma Stone's boyfriend who they thought died in a bungee jumping accident seven years ago comes to the church and oh my gosh, she's alive. She doesn't know who to choose here, right? And it's that whole deal, right? It's the, oh no, it's the wait. It's the, something's going to mess this up, right? And that's exactly what happens because Boaz and Ruth are falling for each other. Boaz and Ruth love each other, but there's the catch and here's the catch. You see, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, but the way that the law worked was there's someone who was closer to Naomi. There was a kinsman who was closer to Naomi that really technically had the right to buy the field and Ruth first. And so Boaz says, I got to do the right thing. I've got to go approach him. And so we're going to catch up to the story here in Ruth 4, verse 3. is the last chapter in Ruth. It says this, then he said to the kinsman redeemer, so Boaz is face to face with the guy who could take Ruth away from him. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm the next in line. And the, the kinsman redeemer says, I will redeem it. But, he wasn't ready for the Boaz's next statement. You see, this, this other kinsman redeemer thought to himself, well, this could benefit me. I could get the field. It could someday be divided up among my kids. I mean, I, this, is, this would be a good business transaction. But he wasn't ready for what Boaz would say in verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Verse 6, At this... The kingsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. What did he say there? What did this other potential kinsman redeemer say? He said this, it's too costly. It's too costly. It's too risky. It could cost me too much. It could destroy me. He says, you do it. I was, I was gonna take the field, but I'm not willing to buy this woman back and redeem her because it just might be too costly. Verse 13, we fast forward a few verses and we see the end result. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And here's what's so powerful, Boaz and Ruth's grandson would be King David and from King David would come our kinsman redeemer. From that line, Many, many generations later, after King David would be a little baby born named Jesus who would come to be your kinsman redeemer, to be my kinsman redeemer, to, to, to buy us back from our worthlessness, both naturally and spiritually, to, to look at our spiritual state where we have nothing to offer him and nothing to give him and to say, I value you and I love you to look at us naturally and say, you know what, you might have this struggle, you might have that struggle. You may have been told this by a parent or a boss or a friend, but here's what I say about you, that you have worth. 
that you're here on purpose, that I've placed gifts in you, that I'm going to use you, that I'm going to buy all that back and redeem it. Those of us here tonight that have been broken because of relationships, those of us who feel alone, those of us who feel abandoned on a natural level, those of us who have been through a divorce or our parents were divorced or we've been recently broken up from a relationship or we've been let go by the job or all the different things that we can feel rejected from, God looks at you and says, I value you and I ascribe worth to you and I will buy you back. Not just physically, but spiritually. Though you can't offer me anything spiritually, though without me you'd be completely alone and abandoned and you could never work your way back, I will buy you back. And I want you to think about the power of it. Think about the power of this because the first kinsman redeemer in this story said it's too costly to purchase her. It could cost me too much. It might ruin everything. And you know, Jesus looked at you and I. He said, it will cost everything, but I'll redeem them. It will cost me my life. It will cost me agonizing torture, but I will redeem them. You know what else I think is really powerful about this? Boaz was only able to be the kinsman redeemer because he was related to Naomi. Let's just think about Jesus for a second. To become our kinsman redeemer, I mean, he, he, he was God. He, he was just fully God. Like, he wasn't fully God, fully man. He was just fully God. And yet he looked at you and I and he said, I, to become their redeemer, have to also become their kinsman. And he was born to be like you and I, to feel pain he'd never felt, to feel physical temptation he'd never known before so that he could ascribe worth to you and he could tell you you're not alone and he could tell you you have not been abandoned. And so the name that we get out of this is our kinsman redeemer, the one who came to buy us back that we deserved absolutely nothing from him. And so very simply what I want you guys to know is that Jesus has redeemed you. Jesus has redeemed you. And you know what? I understand, man. Some of us in this room have experienced tremendous rejection from people, tremendous hurt, tremendous loss. But if that's true, if it is true that Jesus has redeemed us, that he will buy back from our brokenness, that he will even look into the very situations of our lives that we thought were hopeless, if he'll look at that and redeem it, then how can we not have hope? How can we not look to the future and say, man, if he wanted me as his enemy, if he wanted me when I hated him, if he wanted me when I didn't want him, then how can I walk through life without the hope of God? How can I walk through life and feel worthless or alone or abandoned? You see, I think the thing that makes this story so powerful the story of Ruth and Boaz, is that it's a love story. You know, maybe in some of your minds, and I thought this for a second too, like as I was reading through this and studying this, it's, it's, it's kind of like, well, well, of course he bought her back. He fell in love with her, right? There's almost a part of us that wants him to do it just because he's like a noble guy, right? Just because he's a good guy, you know? Like, it's not because it's not I love you. It's just because it's the right thing to do. Can I ask you a question? Do you want God to save you from your sin because it's the right thing to do? Do you want God to save you because he's a good God? Or do you want God to save you? Do you want Jesus to become 
your kinsman redeemer because he loves you. Because it's a love story. Because he looks at you and he loves you and he values you and he wants to be your redeemer. That's the kind of redeemer I want. Not just because he's noble and good. He is noble and good. But I also, I want one who loves me. And that's who you have. That's who speaks to you. That's who tells you who you are. That's where your worth comes from. That's where your companionship deep down comes from in knowing the God who's redeemed you. And when we get this, we have self-worth. And we have hope that there's no situation that he cannot buy back from its brokenness. And so if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, man, I just pray that you, you just celebrate the fact that God became one of us to love you, to redeem you, and to say you have much worth. You're not defined by a boss or a job or a parent, but you have much worth. And if you're not a follower of Jesus tonight, I hope you know that you're valued. You're valued by God. Maybe you never thought about it that way before. Maybe you always thought that this whole God thing was just about working your way to him so he'd like you. Guess what? He doesn't just like you. He loves you, and he doesn't want you to try to work your way toward him. He just wants you to accept his love freely. And then watch what he'll do in you. And so if you want to respond to that love tonight, I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a minute. But I hope tonight we can find tremendous self-worth and tremendous hope that God, that Jesus has redeemed us and there's nothing in our lives that he can't buy back from brokenness. Let's pray. God, we just praise you so much that you love us and we don't even understand it like we've been saying over and over tonight, you don't love us because we had something to offer you. You don't love us because we could do something for you that you otherwise didn't have, but, but God, you love us. And you are good. You are noble. But God, I thank you that, that you, I mean, this is just crazy, but you feel the emotion of love toward us tonight. And beyond the emotion of love, you, you made the choice to love us to become one of us, to become our kinsmen, to purchase us back from our brokenness, our abandonment, and how alone and worthless we've been. We thank you so much for this, God. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to think about the things that maybe you've tried to discover your worth in. I want you to think about the things that maybe kind of ripped your worth right out of your heart. And I want you now to think about the fact that Jesus came to redeem you. How can you walk? How can you walk forward and feel worthless? How can you walk forward and feel alone and abandoned when that's true of you? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity now just to put your faith in Jesus if you'd like to. Nobody's twisting any arms here. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and tell everybody or stand up or it is between you and God, and I will just give you the opportunity now to put your faith in Jesus if that's what you want to do. And so I'd ask you to just pray this quietly, silently in your heart. Jesus, thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for coming for me when I didn't deserve it. Thank you for not thinking it costs too much. 
Thank you for dying in my place and purchasing me back from my worthlessness and my abandonment. God, would you show me how real you are and would you show me what it is to walk close in a relationship with you. So forgive me for my sin and be my savior. Amen.